Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and if you're struggling in a high-conflict relationship, divorce, custody battle, or co-parenting situation that requires individualized attention, let Chris and Lisa at Been There, Got Out hold your hand along the way while providing expert strategic guidance based on one's years of success as a pro se, coupled with the other's high-conflict divorce coach certification. Go to Been There, Got Out and click on the link to schedule a free discovery phone call. I have an audience some guest. Her name is Tina Fumo. She wrote the book called Fancy Prison. This is her first book. It's a memoir and plea to advocate for innocent children all in one. Tina thinks all children are beautiful and deserve utmost of our attention, energy, and care. It comes on the heels of yet another multi-million dollar wasteful government election, and Canadians have had enough. Rather than wallow in anger over government stupidity, Tina's book is a call to action to solidify what is already so positive and so loving about the country and move forward as one with children firmly by their sides. She's going to talk about a lot of things, the importance of remaining calm in court, especially if you're representing yourself, bureaucrats covering their butts, one-sided rigged system and how it breeds confusion and perpetuates lies. I'm going to let her talk more about all of this, and she has a lot to tell us about this excellent book. So I welcome you, Tina, to the show. How are you? And how long did it take you to write this book? Hi, Marianne. I'm, I'm well. Well, first, let's clarify. I am Canadian. So my book is happened and is 100% Canadian. I know that a lot of the issues that we dealt with with CPS um, it happened in the States as well. I mean, we were treated like we were guilty and we had to prove our innocence. Mm -hmm. So going back to your question, how long did it take to write the book? About a year ago, I was um, at home with time on my hands, like everybody else during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I participated in an author challenge, an online author challenge. And it was really interesting. Long story short, I won a publishing prize. I just hadn't written the book about our ordeal. Nice. (laughs) And our ordeal happened in 2017. So I had had years to process um, the stress and the trauma that we went through. I had had years to try to follow up and try to hold the, the government responsible. And, and, and in that time, we had retained a lawyer. So we got absolutely nowhere. And as far as holding anybody accountable, our story does have a happy ending. We did get our baby back mm-hmm. after 27 days. And in the prologue of my book, I... Uh, you know, from my heart, I wrote to my daughter that this book is a, a promise that I made. I, I, I promised her that they wouldn't take her baby. And I broke that promise for 27 days. Mm. And then after that, I promised I would try to seek justice for what was done to her. And that was 
that's what's prompted the book. Mm-hmm. And it took me, it took me about, so after I won this publishing prize, it took about six months to write the book and then another six months to edit it. So about a year, all, you know, all in all, the editing process, I found out, was my, definitely my least favorite part of writing oh, a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the writing the guide in the beginning actually took more time than I thought, but it was really essential because I think when it came to doing the actual writing, I had a roadmap. And even though my book changed over the course of writing it, from the from the guide I originally had, it happened organically. And I, I think that's what contributed to the flow of the book was having that initially having that roadmap. And, you know, even if you veer off the roadmap a little bit, you still got I still got back on it. Mm-hmm. So the so the guideline, so about a year ago I won this prize the guide like I said took a little longer two or three months I think to write the guide and then I started the actual writing in December and then I submitted a rough draft around well I finished the rough draft around March April and then submitted it to the publisher and then that's what started months of editing um, so mm-hmm. yeah about about a year yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, when you were writing that, because you're writing about your daughter, your granddaughter, that must have been so stressful, just writing, reliving it again. It, our, like I said, our story has a happy ending. So no, actually, it was quite cathartic to mm. finally write out our story and focus on trying to um, engage the reader because I, I, you know, I'm in, I, I like so much of what you, we go through, and you know exactly what I mean when you're in this courtroom. It, it's just so mind-boggling, mm-hmm. and like it's just so unbelievable. And you're like, why? You know, how is this happening? I mean, why don't people do something about this? And the, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people just don't care. It's, it's. Maybe that it's not that they don't care, but they get wrapped up in their own problems and they're, you know, they're dealing with their own things and they probably don't have time or the inclination or the energy to help you with your problem. Mm -hmm. So what I, I felt my, when I was writing the book, I, the moments when I cried the most was when I was writing about other people because we wrote about our friend and advocate Suzanne who does not have a happy end ending Mm -hmm. to her story. She had two little beautiful little babies that she wanted to adopt and her, she never was able to adopt them. So now there are probably two, you know, more boys bouncing around the foster care system mm-hmm. I ball like it just makes my blood boil and I mm-hmm. bawled my eyes out writing her you know when I was finishing her chapter mm-hmm. and another one is the little baby on the cover people ask oh is that your granddaughter no it's not my granddaughter but it's somebody's granddaughter I can assure you so the little baby on my cover her name is Delana Sullivan 
And her story is probably like, I still get teary, you know, when I, because we've kept in touch now with the family and they actually just recently met my daughter and my granddaughter for the first time. I mean, the story of Delana is that she was taken from her mother. She was absolutely blindsided by this apprehension Delana was a four healthy, happy four month old baby girl. A week before she was apprehended, she the, she'd been to her doctor's appointment and had weighed in at 19 pounds. And the doctor was like, yep, she's a healthy, happy, normal baby girl, you know, she, everything's good. And, and I don't know what it's like in the States, but here in Canada, when babies are young, you usually go uh, two months to get them checked up four months and six months. And then, you know, and then with their vaccinations along with that. So everything was going tickety-boo with Delana. And a week after that, Jamie, just she, her mother just had no idea what was in store for her. And uh, like the inc incredible nightmare and hell that her life would become so you know I, I again I, I write it out in my book so I don't want to repeat it too much here in the podcast but she had a roommate who had other children and her roommate's reaction to social workers kind of showing up on their doorstep was very different to Jamie's Jamie fought for her baby and mm -hmm. it seemed that a protective parent, the more they fight, the harder it is for them to actually do right by the child and do the right thing. And so Delana was taken from her and they didn't even have a proper car seat for mm -hmm. her baby. And I know I witnessed this with my daughter, like my daughter was beside herself when they took her baby and, you know, strapping her into the car seat. Mm -hmm. And six days, like, it, it, there's just every single moment of that week, of those six days between when Delana was taken and when she died, needs to be investigated with a fine-tooth comb because there were just so many failings of the system of, of why she was taken in the first place, why her mother wasn't granted visits right away. Mm -hmm. They actually contacted jamie's brother within 36 hours of taking the baby and asking him if he wanted to adopt her like there, were, there was just absolutely no due process at all in any of this it was just it was just beyond ridiculous <sighs> and that friday so delana was taken on a tuesday that friday her and her mother finally got a visit with the baby and they immediately could tell she was sick. So they were begging, you know, in addition to begging them not to take her baby in the first place, they were begging the foster, well, they don't call her mother, they call her the foster thing, to take her to a doctor immediately. There's something wrong with her. She's not her usual happy baby self. Mm -hmm. The social worker was supposed to follow up with a meeting, never showed up. Jamie and her mother phoned and phoned, trying to get someone to take them seriously about how concerned they were for Delana's well-being because she was sick. So this was a Friday. That Friday was the last, that was the first visit they had with Delana since 
she was taken and her mother and um, her grandmother, her mother, Jamie, and her grandmother, Marilyn, noticed right away Delana was sick and, and begged and begged for someone to get her to a doctor to the hospital as soon as possible. And they were just ignored and dismissed as over emotional. You know, I mean, I, I really don't know how else you act when your baby's been ripped from your arms. So they spent a weekend in hell, I'm sure, and their court date was scheduled for that Tuesday. So they probably thought that, okay, we just have a, we can just hold on for a couple more days and get in front of a judge. And this whole misunderstanding will be over because, you know, they, they were just beyond stressed. And that Monday, the foster thing still hadn't taken the baby in and she was very later on in during the fatality inquiry and any other kind of you know procedures that they had or any kind of investigation that they had the foster thing was very vague about what time she put delana on down when she heard sounds whatever and she didn't go in and check the baby until 3 30 in the afternoon and the baby was dead she died and they immediately um took her to the hospital but there was nothing that the doctor could do um later on during the none of this is in my book by the way but i just you know the more i get to know the people the more i realize I could write a book on Delana herself, mm -hmm. but in my book, I just mentioned the first time I met them and the reaction I had when I met them, because this is just all part of this horror show, which is Child Protective Services. Mm -hmm. So going back to, again, this stuff is not in the book, but when they, when the doctor took Delana's temperature it was 32 degrees so she'd been cold for quite some time why hadn't the foster thing checked her you know like how long anyway this Jamie and her mother have never gotten any answers never ever gotten any answers because what happened when Delana was taken to the hospital later that day and pronounced dead the doctor at that time told the whoever took her in whether i i'm not sure if it was the social worker or the foster thing or whoever they the doctor told them contact the mother immediately like her baby is dead and jamie did not find out until about 10 o'clock that night so that is out. I, I mean, how difficult is it to pick up a phone? And, you know, again, I, I, I could write a book on Delana Sullivan. Uh, it, well, obviously, it would have to be at Jamie and her mother Marilyn's approval. And, uh, you know, even if I wrote a book, it wouldn't bring that baby back. Mm. So because the next day they were supposed to be in court and... And I ask these questions in my book. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're supposed to be in court the next day. What? So what does the judge do? Does the judge know that a perfectly healthy baby a week ago 
was found dead the day before. Like, like there's just so many questions, so many questions. And when, when I first met them at a child protection forum, I couldn't listen to the story because by then I'd learned, I'd been dealing with this system during our ordeal. I'd heard many stories and I knew the trajectory of what was happening that, so nobody was ever held accountable for the death of this baby. And I left the room. I like, I couldn't listen and I was bawling my eyes out and I just went and sat in a stall in the bathroom and I just shut the door. I didn't have to go like, I didn't have to pee, but I, I just needed to shut the door and I just needed to be alone and process what I just heard. And I, I, I wrote this in my book and I'm like the old Tina would have a hard time believing what she had just heard and the new Tina didn't like, that's the person I became because I know how lucky we were to have gotten our baby back because I, that Delana could have been our baby. She could have been anybody's baby, you know, mm -hmm. but with, with this, with a vague phone call and the power that they have mm -hmm. and how they threaten parents and intimidate parents. It's, it, it's, it, you know, it's not, it, it, it's not, it's not right. I, I, I and I don't understand, like it, it is, it's just mind boggling. Um, so, yeah, I think that answers the question. <laughs> I think I was a little more emotional writing other people's stories than oh, I no. was with ours because we had healed, we had processed our thoughts, we got our baby back. Um, but I just, I wrote this book, book to try to open everybody's eyes mm -hmm. about this system and what it does do to families. Right, because what... You know, if it doesn't happen to you, then you have no idea what this is like. No, no. And I think that, I think the public perception is that everybody who ends up being involved with child protective services is automatically guilty. And I, I, I cannot be emphatic enough how wrong that is because all they did with my daughter, my daughter made mistakes. She's, you know, she's a human being. We all make mistakes. But all they seem to do is just cherry pick only the negative things that my daughter was, was doing or had done, like cherry pick things even from her past, bring them up to the forefront as relevant in the future, and didn't even give her a chance. Um, she, you know, her baby was two weeks old. Come on, give me a break. You can't, you know, oh, yeah. horrible. And, and for the most part, everything that she was doing was fine. Like she, she was just adjusting as parents do, you know, you don't bring your baby home from the hospital and snap your fingers and voila, you're instantly a parent. It takes time. It takes, mm -hmm. you know, and it takes, and even the skills that you develop for uh, one child, like you, you had more than one child, you had a daughter and uh, what, two sons? Yes. And so the skills that you develop for to parent one child are not necessarily the same skills you use for a, a different child, you have to adjust slightly because every mm -hmm. child has a different personality, right? Right. 
So one of the things I do bring up in my book is birth alerts and it's starting to get a little more traction here in Canada. I don't know what it, uh, I don't know uh, about the States or not, but birth alerts are, are like this pseudo red flag. And sometimes people don't even realize that there's a birth alert uh, attached to them when they go to the hospital to give birth of their baby they're, they automatically get flagged in the hospital system. The hospital contacts CPS and they come there based on that phone call from the hospital and apprehend the baby. Like it's just, it, and it's, yeah, it's just very, like it's getting um, a, a lot more traction in Canada because there have been filings with the Supreme Court as well there should be. I mean, it's ridiculous. You, you have not even given that parent a chance. And a lot of, times the parent gets flagged because they were in the foster care system Mm -hmm. and you know and okay you know whatever that experience was like you know for most for the most part it might not have been that great but a lot of uh, kids do get fostered and they do have foster families who who really try their best and love them and but then eventually they age out of foster care Mm -hmm. um, as children tend to do they grow up and they may try to make their way in life as anybody else. Um, but to go into a hospital and not even realize that there's a birth alert uh, on you uh, and then have this, ha- and then you're right back in it again. So even if you got through that in your past, you're not even given a chance. You know, They had a birth alert on my daughter and we didn't find out about it until about a year after she was taken because we got... Um, we applied to get all the notes and everything surrounding our case as, mm-hmm. as you have a right to do. You have a right to get all of the paperwork around what the government has written about you or, you know, attached to your case. A lot of it's redacted, which is fine, but it's like a, a big jigsaw puzzle that you have to put together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when, when, and actually, we actually didn't read it. It was my husband who read it because we were just so fed up with this by then that my husband, he's the one who took the great big jigsaw puzzle with all the redacted statements. And he figured it out. But in the birth alert that they issued with regards to my unborn grandchild, and I, 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 I'm not kidding when I quote this, but one bureaucrat sends an email to another bureaucrat at a hospital and literally says the ball is in your court. The ball, I assume, is my unborn grandchild. And what? Like, okay, ball's in your court. If she shows up at your hospital, like, take the baby kind of thing. Like, this is, to them, it's just a game. And it's just, it's vile. It's, <laughs> it's sickening, you know. And because these are innocent children that have a right, they have a God-given right, a God-given right to be with their biological family. And the onus should not be on families trying to prove their innocence and prove the right to be parents. The onus should be on child protection to actually have evidence and actually have reasons for ripping that child away from their family. Mm -hmm. But that's not, that's not how it works. No. And and they also go over false allegations too i'm sure you've got you guys have that problem in canada like we do over here yes yes the false allegation with my daughter was uh, again going back to how people just assume once you're involved with cps you have your reasons 
well, we think the false allegation was that she's a meth head. Well, you, the social workers coerced a signature out of her, got a hold of her. We suspect it was her pH um, testing for her urine while she was pregnant. And the test results were coming back clean. So there's no, so why are we still in court? Like you've got, you've got mm -hmm. these test results. They're coming back clean. I think they tested once for opiates. Well, what it was determined was my daughter had accidentally taken Tylenol 3 that had codeine in it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a way to test it, I'm sure, for long-term meth use as opposed to, oops, I, I shoot, I forgot. I took, uh, I must have taken a Tylenol 3 or something, right? right. But of course, the, the social workers took that and just blew it out of proportion and making me think like my daughter was an addict, right? Um, so it was just, it was just, sh it's shameful. It's, it's, it's really quite shameful how they treat um, mothers and families and, and how they treated me. Like they, they just honestly thought that they had more rights to their grandchild than I did. Mm. And I think one of the things that becomes very, very clear in my book is my incredible sense of confusion and my incredible sense of frustration mm. because um, like you in your book, because you were blindsided by this. I, I was absolutely blindsided by it. Mm -hmm. And I devote uh, a chapter and, and our friend Suzanne is her uh, role and how she helped us as an as a friend and advocate is intertwined throughout her story. Because mm -hmm. if we didn't, if we didn't have her, I don't know what would have happened. Like I, I just, I was just so shocked and so confused about you know i thought social services was supposed to help families and mm -hmm. i just saw no evidence of, of that at all um but yeah so it was i mean I, i'm kind of jumping around a little bit and i i do mm -hmm. hope that my book i presented in a little more logical fashion mm -hmm. in the uh in the course of about six or seven months from when they took her until when we had that final court date it was definitely the most stressful oh, horrible so i'm gonna but i have to back up a little bit because i think you said in your opening statement that we represented ourselves we didn't represent ourselves we um we applied for legal aid again going back to suzanne because she had helped many um, moms in single moms in Vancouver to get their babies back and not one of them ever got their children back and but she knew what to do she knew the steps that we needed to do and so she was probably far more help with my daughter well not probably she was she was far more help with my daughter than I was because I didn't know what to do in this dealing with this and we were lucky because we had Suzanne and then when we went to court we were lucky because the lawyer that we got was a wonderful man and he was objective and obviously he knows court procedures so he was a very good representative for us in court we were lucky because the foster a uh, couple who our baby was placed with even though they only had her for 27 days they were wonderful people we could tell that like after a while just coordinating visits with them we could just tell they were wonderful people they were taking care of our baby and every <laughs> every time 
we would have a, a, an exchange with the visitation they would they just kept saying to us oh she's such a good baby oh she's you know she's just like she's just lovely she's just better than our kids were you know growing up it's like yep we know and we want her back so mm. <laughs> and they were just wonderful people because i think at the end of that um 27 days the the foster dad did admit like he didn't really understand why the baby was taken in the first place because what they were being told by mcfd uh, the ministry of child and family development so that's the cps in uh, the province of british columbia what they were being told by mcfd and what they were seeing with their own eyes it just wasn't adding up like they they weren't seeing a neglectful mother or a mother on drugs or whatever they were seeing a mother and a grandmother who were there you know we were showing up for visits and okay what do we have to do now okay how do we get our baby okay what do you need from us to get the baby back you know it was just we were just trying to move forward trying to work with them mm -hmm. uh, if that's you know if that's at all possible yeah is it possible because i mean in some cases they'll work with you and it seems like in most cases they don't want to work with you no no there there's a there's a different agenda going on and i you know i i mean i try to come up with some of the the points in my book uh birth like absolutely blindsiding parents with something like birth alerts is how one way that they do it another th way is the secrecy so because they're dealing with cases involving children they always claim oh well you know we can't talk about that because it's involving a child and i raise this issue in my book it's like okay wait a second you've been hiding behind this veil of secrecy for how long now you actually don't have to name the children you don't even have to name the gender of the children what you can what's relevant is the age of the child and how everybody is behaving how the parents are behaving how the social workers are behaving what's happening in court what kind of the the fact that uh there's no due diligence whatsoever in mm -hmm. our case we were never we never had an opportunity to present evidence. I mean, that that to me is a big, so it's the secrecy. And then another one is, why is it there no evidentiary hearing at all? Mm -hmm. All it was was the social workers presenting in court. And a lot of times they're not, not even sworn in. They're just talking to the judge from the courtroom about this, that, or the other thing. And, and you know, and this I say in my book because because <laughs> all they kept doing was regurgitating the same criticisms of my daughter about this whole litany of of drugs that she had used. You know, I don't I don't like it. I think they added a few in there or whatever because my daughter was absolutely furious when she saw all of these street drugs or ecstasy or I don't know whatever Molly or whatever they call it. But they just list all these things out in the courtroom and not once do they talk about anything good. It's all bad. I mean, if you go and cherry pick everything from somebody's past and, and present that as the whole picture, that's not fair. I mean, you can no. pretty much find dirt on everybody, right? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's made mistakes. So it was just very, very one-sided. And the fact that we did not 
have any op any kind of evidentiary he hearing any opportunity at all to show the judge look at these are my daughter's drug tests everything's clean this is you know these are the doctor's reports the baby's fine like there's like why are we here there's no reason to be dragging this out but no we know nothing we never got that opportunity at all all it ever was was the social workers presenting their side of the story and they wanted to control the narrative and they wanted to only pre present the negative aspect of it mm -hmm. and we like a, we were just lucky we were just lucky that we had suzanne we were lucky we had a good lawyer we were lucky that when we went we were lucky because we didn't live in that same province so we were lucky because i lived in another province so we got i got my family out of there and we were able to create a provincial barrier which really helped because there's only so much they can do mm -hmm. they can't um for as far as the bureaucracy is concerned they can't go digging around in another province's files as easily so that was the that was one of the signatures they were trying to get from me and I just refused to sign. I mean, we'd already—I'd already signed a three-month uh, TCO, which is a temporary custody order of my for my granddaughter, which is fine. I accept a temporary custody of her. I had already signed a supervision over order over my daughter, which meant I had to supervise. I could not leave my daughter alone with her baby, which was stressful. But we we did it because we just wanted to get through this and then get these people out of our lives. So when they sent me these other forms to sign, they claimed it was for funding. Well, I read through it and I'm like, oh, I don't know this. First of all, it's not very much money. And second of all, in the forms, it said something like, um, looking for what's relevant. Well, who's deciding what's relevant? It sure as heck isn't me because up until now, it's all been you guys. You're the ones who are all deciding, you know, what gets presented in front of judges. So I refused to sign and they plot a pride pressure, pressure. They tried to get another social worker in and that social worker actually came in again, Friday afternoon. That's always seems to be when they want to do their, you know, apply their pressure. Friday afternoon, and she actually expected my signature. I'm like, uh, no, I get to read this. I get to consult a lawyer. I get to actually think about whether I want to sign this. So no, off, off you go. You're not getting my signature on this. And she was, you know, a little forceful, but not too, too bad because she knew I was right. Like, I have a right to read this. I'm not just mm -hmm. going to sign whatever you put in front of me. Like, how ridiculous is that? So she was doing this on behalf of the BC social workers. And after oh, we went back and forth with that for quite a few weeks, so and then because of the holiday, um, Canada, we have Canada Day, I think it's your on July the 1st. Yeah, which is like your 4th of July. Right. So I think I think they sent these forms out to me in June, expecting me to sign them. And I killed a week here. And then the one social worker went on holidays. So that was another week or two killed. And then, so it wasn't until the long weekend of July that they realized that day I wasn't signing them. Like, even mm -hmm. though they had tried two or three or four times to get me to sign, like I wasn't signing them. It got sent back to their office, blank. I hadn't signed it. And they were done. Like, they were just done. Like, you guys mm -hmm. are not getting this baby back. I'm not signing anything. We're going to serve out these two, these uh, temporary custody and supervision orders over and then we'll go back to court if necessary because 
there's no reason to be involved in our lives anymore. And they, but you know, they kept trying to find, they kept trying to find an angle um, because after I didn't sign that they had to go look for something else. So it was just, it was just ridiculous. Like just the whole thing was just ridiculous. Yeah. So, so in Canada, do they have, licensed social workers or are these inept case workers because that's what i was dealing with yeah um no i won't say i won't say um first of all i don't really 100 percent know um i think each province probably has its own um its own uh prerequisites that are required for social work mm -hmm. but i will say that i don't think the child protective social workers represent all the social workers out there. Mm -hmm. There are many, many kinds of social workers. Uh, in fact, the woman that I dedicate, one of the women I dedicated the book to, Mrs. Grant, she was my guidance counselor at school. And she was very, uh, more so than my family, because I come from a Italian background. And so a lot of times, dad was like, oh, well, you know, or do we spend the money on an educating a girl kind of thing? Anyway, I won't get mm -hmm. into that. But, <laughs> but, but this is, so she was, she was, uh, she was my guidance counselor at school and she knew my mark. She knew I was a straight A student. So she was very uh, influential in getting me to go on to university, but her background was social work. She, hmm. was, she was a wonderful person. The, the foster parent who took care of our baby, she had a background in social work. So there are there are far more wonderful social workers who are actually doing, I think, what they're supposed to be doing, working in the community and helping people who need help. I don't know what it is about, about social workers who take children away from their parents. I don't know anything about their, what kind of license they require, what kind of training you get to do that. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, Marianne. Mm -hmm. I, I do know in my book, there are two rabbit holes I just did not want to go down. One of them was the level of cruelty mm -hmm. involved here. I, I, I just did not want to give too much emphasis on that because I know it's there. It had to be there because what kind of a person takes a two-week-old baby away from a mother screaming and begging for them not to do it. But I didn't want to get into that in my book because I don't understand it. And another thing I didn't want to get into in my book was the level of hatred involved mm -hmm. because of, again, going back to Delana's family and the level of hatred they feel towards that woman who was supposed to be, supposed to be taking care of their baby, that, that, that's just never gonna go away that baby is in the ground now she's in a grave and but i don't know i didn't i don't i didn't know what to do with that in my book i did not want to emphasize that level of hatred because that is um their pain their feelings and again i could write a book on delana sullivan but it wouldn't you know i'd have to work with marilyn and and jamie on that and probably talk about things that they have just tried they probably never will heal from but it won't bring Delana back mm -hmm. um, so yeah <laughs> well how did you come up with the title fancy prison 
Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> my, my, my daughter, what, so when we were in BC, after they had taken our baby, we had gone to court. Uh, the judge just rubber stamped, you know, everything. And we had to try to work with social services to do what they wanted. And one of the things they wanted was, of course, this supervision and temporary custody order. We had to find another place because I could not bring my family back to Alberta and have them live with us because we live in a building that's adults only. Mm -hmm. And three months would have been... Um, too long it would have been in breach of our condo conditions condominium um, rules mm -hmm. so we had to find another place and when I was making phone calls from BC to find another apartment here in the city where we live I, I would get told well I'm sorry I can't help you because I would try to be explaining to, from another province why I needed this place but people mm -hmm. were you know well no I can't help you kind of thing and then one day I thought, oh, shoot, our realtor, of course. She's the one who found us the, um, our condo that we, we bought. And so I phoned her up and she says, yeah, Tina, I got, I've got three places, you know, pick, like just pick one, sitting empty, just pick one. We can move in. Well, the problem was they were really expensive. It's like, yeah, 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 we'll take it, we'll take it. But, <laughs> mm -hmm. but we can't afford it, but we'll figure it out, you know, because we just needed, to, I just need to get my family out of there, you know, and, and get them in a situation that where we could start to um, have our baby and just live life with our baby. And so my daughter started calling it and we didn't have a stick of furniture when we drove from BC to Alberta. It was a long trip. It seemed longer coming back. Uh, we didn't have a stick of furniture, but we had, you know, she met us and then we had to, I had to cash in all my retirement savings to be able to, pay for this place over the next few months and it was a beautiful place so my daughter started to term it fancy prison because it was absolutely gorgeous but <laughs> which she was under supervision orders she couldn't be left alone with her baby and I had temporary custody of her baby so to her it was still it may be nice but it's still prison so <laughs> definitely oh yeah it's an excellent title yeah, well, that's all my daughter. So it was her. Uh, her was it was her tongue in cheek little old back to fancy prison again. <laughs> how horrible to do to to people! It just amazes me how CPS treats, you know, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it really is mind boggling. And I mean, I've sat in on uh, the one thing about the pandemic is that it this issue now. Like, I mean, I'm talking to you from Edmonton in Canada. You're in uh, Pennsylvania, I think. Yes. I can jump on Zoom and talk to people in Australia. And there's um, a network of people in England. I think they have like a Facebook page called Forced Adopt Adoptions. And mm -hmm. they'll post pictures of babies taken from their parents and, again, being forced into adoption. So the one thing about this is that it's it's not just Canada, it's the States, it's mm -hmm. Australia, it's the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. I was recently on one in Australia, and it's the same thing, you know, just very compassionate people who want to help families, but they just shake their hands. Like, it's just so mind-boggling 
what parents are put through. It's a global problem. It's a global criminal problem. I, mm -hmm. I would call it criminal. Well, you did. You called it um, the RICO. And I used, I used that in my book, you and another author. You call it the, uh, the federal courts could charge them with violations of the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations, the RICO Act, which mm -hmm. we all saw in The Godfather, but uh, that was a movie, mm -hmm. but this is real life, you know. Right. And these are our children that are being moved around, trafficked for money, mm -hmm. And it's government sanctioned. It's it, the, the child trafficking, of course, you, you know, people, they should be really upset over the child trafficking than they are with anything else that's going on on this earth right now. Because this is our future. These are our future generations that are being broken up and their their personalities are changing because they've been put in that foster home then they're being taken out of there and put into another foster home and they're not what am i trying to say they they're just accepting being treated like that it just doesn't i don't know i just don't know how it's going to stop well, yeah, it, I mean, it is, Marianne, it's, this is impossible to put into words. Um, I, 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 you know, I tried in my book. I think I did a good job conveying some issues in it. I didn't get to everything in, in it, but I didn't want to overwhelm the reader. I, I just really wanted to keep the story moving. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I talk about is bonding. And mm -hmm. I think this is what you're trying to nail on with the foster homes bonding for it just happened my husband and i just talked about this today it just happens I, I i mean here we were we were present we the situation that my husband and i he's my second husband so we don't have children together our so this baby she ended up being our baby because we bonded with her together mm -hmm. and it's something that is just so important for families mm -hmm to have that, that space and have that time. And, you know, I think that's what maternity leave is all about. You need to have that time to, to, to bond with your baby. Mm -hmm. And those bonds are incredibly important for the child's development in the first few years, uh, for them to understand trust, um, and and to you know love and trust of their parents and that bonding uh, i think it keeps the children grounded as they go on through you know elementary school and uh, especially in high school you know that's definitely when they need to know that their, their mom and dad still love them even though they're <laughs> mm -hmm. acting up <laughs> right right oh how unfortunate i just i can't imagine having a newborn taken away from me i i've never experienced that it was bad enough when they were teens i can't imagine yeah. a newborn yeah yeah but so we're getting we're getting some of the feedback now from my daughter's friends because of course she's sharing the link with uh, some of her close friends before we actually haven't um 
I ha actually haven't come out with a price yet. I think I told you that already uh, at mm -hmm. the beginning of this. Yeah. So we're, it hasn't been printed to paper book yet. So we're just still sort of having conversations and the feedback I'm, I'm hearing from my daughter is her friends are just like, they, they, they're just in shock. Like, they had no idea because they're seeing her now as a busy mom with this busy toddler mm -hmm. and they had no idea that she went through this, you know, with mm -hmm. this kid. It's like, well, it was not, first of all, it's not something that we talk about at dinner time, you know, because, you know, eventually mm -hmm. people get tired of hearing, hearing about it, how stressed we were. Right. And, and, you know, so hopefully this book just sort of gets it out of my system that, okay, this is our story, but it's, it, it, it is, it does have a happy ending, but this is an ongoing issue. So it doesn't just stop at my book. There are right. many, many things that we can do to try to remedy the situation and try to help mm -hmm. families. How soon will your book come out? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, I suspect that we'll come up with a price in the next week or two. And then I'd say, what are we at? We're at the beginning of October. October, I'd say by the end of October, it should be in on paperback. Yeah, available on Amazon. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's gonna open up a lot of eyes because people need to know this is going on globally. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the reviews I got said one of the I've only gotten a few reviews, but the, the link I think you're making it available to your podcast listeners. Yes. So mm -hmm. they can go ahead and download that link now and do it soon because, it, like I said, we'll come up with a paperback price in the next uh, week or two. So download that link right now. I think it's cheap. It's a, a dollar US or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know people are busy, but read a couple of chapters and just post a couple of sentences reviewing my my book my writing what you think of it on amazon just to get uh word and and to create some buzz for my book out there mm -hmm. uh, before we launch it on paperback yes i i left you a review and um oh, did you? oh. <laughs> so yeah you i think your book is going to be a tremendous success because people need to hear this they, they can't just you know look at their families and say you know, like if they're grandparents and say, oh, you know, our, our son just had a new baby. And what if CPS just walked through your door and just took this kid away based on a false accusation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. That, so yeah. nobody, yeah, nobody wants to like my, my book may force people into some uncomfortable conversations, but these are conversations we need to have. What if, what mm -hmm. if definitely because and i think that the one of the reasons there there may be a variety of them and again i i, I have more questions than answers here but I, I i think that the reason why cps has been able to fester and per perpetuate to the mm -hmm. state that it is now is that people just shut down they don't talk about this well i'm talking about this okay mm -hmm. this is Ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous what we were made to go through. It wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. It is not in the best interests of the child. Mm -hmm. And the way that I see it now is that they are running a wholesale 
operation of sticking kids into foster care or into less than ideal circumstances, which I repeat is not in the best interest of the child, how can social workers actually do their job of finding children who truly need prote- protection? Mm-hmm. And they always claim, oh, well, we don't have the money. We don't have the resources. Of course you don't have the money. Of course you don't have the resources because you're so busy, you know, p- picking on this every Tom, Dick and Harry and, and uh, dads and moms and grandparents. And you're just so busy filling the foster care system with children that who do not need to be there. You can work with families, like truly genuinely work with families. Mm-hmm. And then once you sift through that, because right now it's just a human warehouse of, of mm-hmm. grief. Once oh, you yes. do that, then maybe you can start making attempts to find the children who really truly need protection and and make this world a better place because this is this is just mm-hmm. you better be on the right side of this because this is just wrong on so many different levels mm-hmm. well i know that we have a very large turnover of caseworkers over here because I think their consciences bother them. However, there are those that have worked their job 11 years, 12 years, and they thoroughly enjoy coming into your house and threatening you and then making up all sorts of allegations and they will do it. They will do it. I've seen it with my own eyes. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. (laughs) Well, you know what? I wouldn't want to be there when it's time to meet my maker because that's Mm -hmm. certainly what, if my boss asked me to do that, I'd be like, nope, I'm not taking anybody's kid. I don't care what I, you know, I don't care what you said that person did. I would, you know, I need a little more evidence. I need to, (laughs) you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I guess, you know, social worker is not something I ever wanted to be. And that goes tenfold now. I don't think it's a job that, you know, and I I don't think it's an easy job. But Mm -hmm. I I think that the way that they're doing it right now is just it's not right at all. There's just no. And another thing, too, I bring up in my book is that, that that children can't vote. So why are so why are politicians and why is the court why is it even a venue to decide what happens to that child the, a judge gets in front a, a family gets in front of a judge for what 30 seconds and they only see on paper what's involved in the child's life and then they make a decision you know slam the gavel that's the name of your podcast right that it's not like it should not be in a court of law with the with the rapists and or i should say sorry um the uh, charged rapists or the charged murderers because that's what they're going to court for is due process Mm -hmm. with evidence to prove and they have to be assumed guilty or assumed innocent and then they the court or the public defenders have to prove that they're guilty right Mm -hmm. so there's no you know again there's no and i address it a bit of my book too it's because it's they operate in the gray areas of the law because family court is a civil matter but it's just now the civil courts are just um clogged up with all of these cps cases and it's just out of control it is out of control i agree with mm-hmm. you there is there anything else you'd like to add mm, no no i think I think I've, I think I've covered 
some of the bullet points, I guess I can still talk about, um, well, I guess one chapter I did touch on and it was kind of weird how timely it was because I wrote this book, like I said, started writing in December and then finished my rough draft around March. And one of the chapters that I wrote about was about Indian residential schools mm. and here in Canada, it um, made news at the end of May when they found 215 unmarked graves in a residential school in Kamloops, BC. So, so yeah, I mean, it was just kind of weird timing that I had written about that exact topic in my book. And that chapter, I called it Time Traveling Eagle. And the premise of that was, you know, what if, like, imagine Canada before you know, Indian residential schooling and travel with this time traveling eagle back to a date, a beautiful spring day in 18, I don't know, 26, I think. Mm -hmm. And so two things about that chapter, because I wrote and rewrote it several times. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I talk about is how maybe the uh, indigenous cultures didn't have books. A lot of their storytelling was just through sitting around a campfire, you know, and, elders passing on their knowledge and their stories but that isn't the case anymore i think a lot of indige indigenous peoples now have um, gotten an education they obviously have put in a, a a high premium on making sure their kids go to good schools uh, they've gotten university degrees in fact here in edmonton at the university of, of alberta there is a special law department dedicated to indigenous legal issues so that isn't the case anymore whereas and there's been many 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 books written about residents uh, residential school survivors mm -hmm. and so yeah the fact that maybe they didn't have any book, books back in 1826 certainly doesn't hold true now they mm -hmm. a lot of a lot has been written about it and they continue to um, explore this in a literary way uh, on books or in news articles and in legislature and getting laws passed, that sort of thing. Um, another point about time traveling eagle, and because I'm a white person, I had a heck of a time finding someone who would talk about residential schools with me. And most of, most of the time it was over the phone. So I don't even know necessarily if they could tell I was white. They were maybe a bit confused about, about what I was doing. Um, which is fair enough. It's sometimes right. when you're writing a book, you're not always 100% sure. Okay. Is this going to come together? But I had a hard time finding someone who would talk about residential schools because of the simple fact that many of the survivors just do not talk about it. They don't talk about it. Um, on Canada day, we had a different Canada day here, whereas people were just so disgusted about, the findings of unmarked graves. So after the Kamloops finding, I think there was about 700 more unmarked graves found in um, Saskatchewan, which is oh, a Prairie terrible. province. Yeah. So, but I think by Canada Day, people are, were thinking and, the, and they were in a reflection mode. And I ended up going on Canada Day to my first ever powwow. And I, I, and I quite like powwows. I mean, I've seen them on TV or heard people talking about them. But I, the one thing I love about powwows is how 
they make everyone stand in giant circles and I think they go and uh, like rotate according to the sun. So it's because it's very earthy, it's very elemental. And when I went to that powwow that, that day, I met a man and he appeared to be my age. And by then I'd written the book, but I was still, because, and I know that I'd had a lot of trouble trying to find someone who I could interview about residential schools. But I just, you know, casually mentioned to him, oh, you look about that, you know, that age. Were you in residential schools? And he just told me, no, my parents were, but they never talked about it. So that was, that was by far the reaction I got mostly about that um, issue, because I do dedicate a chapter to it in my book. But I don't really get into it because, again, I'm a white person. I'm not Indigenous. I didn't grow up with these um, stories and with these issues. And, you know, I didn't, as far as uh, I tried to find the common ground of schooling. And I went to an awesome Catholic school when I was growing up. And, uh, you know, I say, say in my book, every single day I could come home on the bus. It wasn't like I was missing my mom you know, or her cooking, because my mm -hmm. mom was the best cook in the whole wide world. She was Italian, so she was a very, very good cook. <laughs> yeah. I had the best food growing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure having you on. If people need to reach you or contact you, do you have contact information? Um, I have a website that people can contact me through that. And let's see. So one of so one of the things I um, I had registered a charity in Alberta called Gentle Giants, and um, after my book comes out, I'll kind of you know think about where the the mission of the charity and where it's going to go. Anyway, the mm -hmm. so the website is uh, www.gentlegiants.academia. So a c a d e m i a dot like short for education edu mm -hmm. gotcha gotcha I'll, okay. I'll put that in the podcast notes as well and um i thank you for coming on and i'd like to have you back on as a guest too if you like oh well that would be that would be awesome yeah, yeah. i guess we'll see how the book goes after it launches and we'll go from there well thanks so much for having me on and yes. uh, getting me prepared for with the with the questions that you had it was uh <laughs> It was a little different. Your kids were older, you know, it was definitely different with a two week old baby, but. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. But well, hey, don't jump off. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Nope. And, okay. Slam the gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough. We cry out for justice, poems of truth. Please join us again in the future here with Tina and other guests. Thank you so much, Tina. Great. <laughs>